Looking for the latest perspectives to help simplify changing market conditions? Go to Nationwide, one of America's largest financial services companies. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast. And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, along with Tom Keen and Jonathan Farrow. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Lizanne Saunders, the chief investment strategist at Charles Schwab, joins us right now. Lizanne, I've been looking forward to it because we're not going to talk about soft landing, hard landing, no landing, none of that. We're going to talk about what you and the team have been focused on now for a while, and that's rolling recessions. That is a framework, Lizanne. Why is that so important for you, that nuance? Well, first of all, this is a unique cycle. That's the ultimate understatement. I think taking a nuanced approach is important. And we've been using that that term for quite some time. I think the only other uh, person that I know that's been using it as long as we have is uh, Ed Yardeni. And, and, and not that we want to rehash the last three and a half years, but if you think about the stimulus-fueled demand surge coming out of the worst part of the pandemic, all of that demand and money associated with it was funneled into the good side of the economy because we had no access to services. That was where the inflation problem first began on the good side of the economy, exacerbated by the supply chain disruptions. But fast forward to the more recent period, we've gone into hard landings, recessions for housing, manufacturing, a lot of housing-related, many of the consumer product areas that were big beneficiaries of the lockdown. And we've gone from inflation to disinflation to deflation in many of the goods categories. We've just had the later offsetting strength on the services side. Same thing has rolled through in terms of inflation. So to me, best case scenario is not really soft landing. That ship already sailed for many important segments of the economy. It's a continued roll through where if and when services in the labor market get hit, you have found stability and maybe even some improvement in those areas that have already taken their hit. Lizanne, love your nuance. Let's build on that. Where are you seeing opportunities that might have hit bottom bottom that you want to be investing in now, in particular sectors that you think already have rolled through their hard landing and are now buys? I, I still think that investors are better off taking a factor-based approach as opposed to a monolithic sector-based approach. But we have made some adjustments in terms of the f- factors that we're focused on. As you know, we've talked about it on this program. We have been emphasizing stay up in quality with factors like interest coverage and strong return on equity and strong balance sheet, but also growthy factors like positive earnings revisions and surprises. But I think you want to now add kind of a valuation kicker into the mix because this year was characterized by all multiple expansion, no earnings growth. We see in the last month that there is money itching to move out of the Magnificent Seven to find opportunities down the cap spectrum. And you have seen some lower quality kind of characteristics to some of what has rallied. I think you want to fade that and continue to lean into quality, but you can find it across the spectrum of sectors and also outside that that group of just the Magnificent Seven. So you said something, Liz, 
Jason talking about how people are itching to take the money that they've put into the Magnificent Seven and put it to work elsewhere that might be at a lower valuation. How big is that wave of people itching to get out of the Magnificent Seven? Is this something that could cause an underperformance or is it just simply there's just been so much money people are looking for other ideas? Well, so far, so good in terms of the rotational nature of this easing of some of the excesses. You know, you, you've seen some pullback in the Magnificent Seven, the Russell 2000, S&P equal weight is outperforming the S&P over the past month or so. It's happened in kind of a stealth way. That's obviously the best way to go through a corrective phase of excesses versus the bottom falling out all at once. What concerns me, particularly once we get past the year-end seasonality, is that there is incredible incredible amount of overlap, especially in the large institutional world and the hedge fund world in terms of ownership of not just the Magnificent Seven, but up the cap spectrum. And that, you know, if we get some sort of catalyst and it unleashes more uh, frenzy around selling, I, I think maybe the hit would have to be larger. But I do think absent that we could continue to see a broadening out via rotation again, as opposed to some significant significant crack occurring in the market. Lizanne, can you help us gauge sentiment just a little bit? We're told, Lisa and myself, repeatedly that the money in money market funds is really, really sticky. As you look across clients to the people you speak to daily, have they been moving into equities over the last month? What was that move in November? So you, you've, you've seen some move in equities, but it's actually interestingly within the US equity market been toward areas like real estate utilities. And I think that is in keeping with expectations of sooner rather than later Fed cuts. I'm skeptical about that, but that's where the money has gone. But sentiment is really interesting because attitudinal sentiment measures have gone off the charts of bullishness and, you know, very little bearishness. Yet even the AAII survey that we get those attitudinal bullish bearish readings, the equity exposure of that same cohort of investors has actually been coming down. On the other hand, uh, active institutional managers have actually been significantly increasing exposure. So much like cross currents in the economy, there's even a lot of cross currents in terms of sentiment data. And it's it's really a mixed picture. And sentiment is hard to, it's always hard to use as some market timing tool, even at extremes, but it's particularly murky uh, in this environment right now. Lizanne, just to put a bow on it, you did just mention there that you're skeptical about rate cuts. Can you just explain that a little bit more? Well, the, the inflation is still above the Fed's target. The labor market is hanging in there. The economy is hanging in there. How that justifies a pivot from the most aggressive tightening cycle to easing as soon as the first quarter of next year, I don't get it. It's possible the Fed to be easing, but probably because there's more economic dis dislocation between now and then. In addition, you had the Fed and Powell specifically pointing to the bond market doing a lot of the tightening for the Fed when you were in the surge and yields up to 5%. To me, what would be interesting to hear is if they start to say, well, the loosening, which is a record one-month loosening in financial conditions in November, maybe that does some of the loosening for the Fed. And it wouldn't surprise me if, if Powell has to yet again reinforce the notion that they're not, at this point, considering uh, rate cuts. That's the conversation for a week today. Lizanne, thank you. Lizanne Saunders there of Charles Schwab, one of the very best. 
Joining us now is Amanda Lynham, Head of Macro Credit Research at BlackRock. Amanda, good morning. Good morning. Thank you both for having me. How much money is shifting to private markets? So our forecast calls for that asset class to grow from $1.6 trillion globally to $3.5 trillion by the end of 2028. So that implies a pretty significant continued growth pattern uh, through the next five years. There are really four drivers behind that. The increase in, in, in the addressable market is one of them, but it's really investors looking for diversification, borrowers looking for certainty of execution, structural shifts in the public markets, which are now serving larger and larger borrowers. So that renders small middle market debt deals illiquid. And then fourth is the opportunity for banks to partner with non-banks. And also um, just given the well-telegraphed contraction in bank lending and, and, and tightening of bank lending standards to really fuel that growth. And so that's our that's our forecast. Was that a, a really uh, nice way of saying debanking, that basically <laughs> private credit is stealing banks' lunch? I, 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 I watched all of your... Uh, your great coverage yesterday, and, and I did see the debanking uh, dialogue. I, I, I actually think, I agree with the comments that banks will remain at the center of the lending universe. Um, that said, I think the important takeaway is that as private credit has become sizable and scalable in its own right, it can now compete against other parts of the market where it wasn't historically. And so what we've actually seen are some companies with demonstrated access to the public markets choosing to refinance in the private markets. Um, I think there's an opportunity for banks to partner with non-banks in terms of um, in an environment where capital and liquidity rules may change to partner and, and maybe move some of that lending into other parts of the non-bank system um, doesn't mean that the, the risk transfer is a negative. It just means that capital is being reallocated just like it did after the financial crisis. So there is this sort of larger question when you say banks will still be the center of the lending universe. It raises this question about what that means. They'll be the center in terms of maybe organizing some of these transactions, but not necessarily the center of profits, not necessarily the center of deploying risk and then getting that outsized return for some of these private loans. Is that what we're seeing, that they're going to be the center of sort of some of the transactional aspects, but that private credit firms are going to really get the upside from these loans that banks used to capture? I, I mean, I think um, from, from the side of the, the banking relationship, they really have a lot of the client relationships, a lot of the underwriting expertise. Um, but in an environment where risk-weighted assets are going up, does it make sense to hold all of that capital on the bank balance sheet, or is there a more capital-efficient way to do it? Um, I think that's really the, the shift that we're seeing. Now, some of these factors have been in place for a really long time. Going back to the financial crisis after Dodd-Frank was enacted, the public syndicated leverage loan markets grew because banks didn't want to keep those loans on their balance sheet. Instead, they syndicated them out to a wide range of investors. That's how the public debt markets have been growing for so long. So I think that's that's just, an, it's another sort of iteration of this capital allocation that's shifting in response to the regional banking disruption in March, in response to the potential rules for Basel three endgame, and I think it's probably a longer-term shift. By the way, I would say, you know, our three and a half trillion forecast, it assumes a 15% compound annual growth rate. That's actually below the growth rate that we've seen over the past five years, and it's consistent with the growth rate over the past decade. So it sounds large, but it, it's actually a continuation of the trend that's already been in place. Let's talk about big moves over the last month. Yeah. Credit spread so much tighter on high yield. I think 367. Yeah. 
right now. I just wonder from your perspective, still up in quality and what do you make of this move? So, I, I mean, I, I think the move, it's very, it's consistent with this kind of um, year-end rally that has been fueled by pretty favorable technicals. We've seen issuance pick up, but not to a significant extent that it's interfering with that tightening. Um, from our perspective, yes, up in quality still makes a lot of sense for this really important reason. Most of the issuance in 2023, and I'm talking about the Levfin market, has been up in quality within that market. So double Bs and high single Bs. The low, low end of the quality spectrum, so triple Cs and low single Bs, has really been untested. There's been a lot of talk about rate cuts. Um, that's not really our base case in the first half. But even if we do get a few modest rate cuts, just to put that in perspective, the, the implied refinancing cost on average for triple Cs is above 600 basis points. For the distressed universe, it's above 1,400 basis points. So this low end of the quality spectrum, even if we get some rate relief, they're still going to be refinancing into a much higher cost of capital regime. How long can Goldilocks, la uh, Goldilocks last then? I think it's uh, the title of our 1Q outlook was a widening divide. Um, and, I, and I really think it speaks to the dispersion that's evident under the surface in a lot of these markets. So for Goldilocks investment grade, Goldilocks, um, you know, high quality, high yield, they're in a pretty good spot, especially if we can achieve the soft landing. If you're a triple C rated credit that has refinancing to do and you're looking at uh, your current coupon and then the 600 basis points that it may cost you to refinance in today's market or more, much different story. It's part of the reason why we expect defaults to continue to march higher through the first half of next year. It's not not a spike, uh, not a significant increase, but, but I don't think we ask a lot, have we seen the last of this transition to a higher cost of capital? I don't believe that we have. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. With us around the table, I'm really pleased to say the brilliant Libby Cantrell, the Managing Director and Head of Public Policy over at PIMCO. Libby, good morning. Good morning. Another big debate for Republicans Another a little big bit debate. later. Yes. Is this the big one? Does it make a difference? <laughs> this is the big one. So this may be the last one, actually. There's not a, another debate scheduled before Iowa uh, when voters, of course, on the Republican side will go to the polls on January 15th. Um, viewership has declined since the first debate. Uh, that's when we saw sort of a top tick of 13 million. Uh, the last debate was around 
around seven million. So we'll see if people are even paying attention to this. I think the real question though, John, is does, can Nikki Haley have another breakout moment? Does this sort of sustain the momentum that she has, both in terms of the polling, but very importantly in terms of the donors? Uh, and that remains an open question. I think that the other three folks on the debate stage will be sort of attacking Nikki Haley. I think Nikki Haley will be attacking uh, President Trump. So it should be um, raucous as usual, but does it actually make a difference? I think that's a, the open question. What's the chance that you see another Biden-Trump uh, matchup? Well, so, you know, what we're guiding our clients to is one is that Biden will be the nominee. Uh, this sort of idea that there is some great cabal uh, at, the, at the convention uh, that will unseat him, we just do not think is founded. Um, Senator Bros from, from Louisiana, who had served with Joe Biden in the Senate, said, as long as President Biden is breathing, he is running. And I think that is something we should just uh, you know, take take for uh, take for what it is. You know, on the Republican side, obviously, if the primaries were held tomorrow, it looks like Trump would be uh, the nominee. They're not going to be held tomorrow. They're held in around 40 days. And what we've seen with Iowa and New Hampshire is that things can change. Um, they haven't really changed in terms of dictating who the nominee is since 2008, when Obama, uh, who was sort of underperforming all of the polls, then really outperformed in both Iowa and New Hampshire, and was able to get the the momentum to the nominee. So a lot can still happen, but as of now, if you were saying if the primaries were held tomorrow, it would be another Biden-Trump rematch. And, you know, ironically, I'll just say is that 70 percent of Americans don't want that. <laughs> so well, that's the reason why I think it got so much attention yesterday when Joe Biden said if it wasn't for Donald Trump, he wouldn't be running again. What do you make of that? Do you make that if Nikki Haley is the nominee for the Republican side, that there is a chance that Joe Biden would step down and pave the way for somebody else? Yeah, so his, his, his press shop really walked that back uh, last night after those comments were made. They were made, of course, in private at a fundraiser. Uh, so it was maybe, I think they're saying, taken, taken out of context. You know, however, you know, I th this is something that President Biden has been saying since he was a candidate in 2020, that that's why he was running uh, the first time. And so this is a somewhat consistent with, with that messaging. However, if Trump does not get the nomination, I still think that you know, President Biden is the incumbent president. Um, he believes that he really has a record both on the economy and then foreign policy to, to, to feel confident to run on. So we are not getting sort of any indication from folks uh, close to the Biden world that he is that he's not running, he is running. We would all appreciate, I think we could all benefit from a delegation allocation rules clinic from you. <laughs> How have yes. things changed for Republican primaries? Especially as a non, yes, US, uh, a US citizen. So I appreciate John that, that, that question. Uh, yeah, so, so this is important. It's like very nuanced in a lot of our clients' eyes, understandably glaze over. But to get the nomination, it's just a delegate game. You need to get 50% of the delegates at stake on the Republican side and the, and the Democratic side. The Republican side is the real story here, though, because the, the Trump campaign, much more organized than it was in 2016 by their own admission. Uh, they have now sort of systematically changed the way that states allocate delegate rules to benefit him as long as it's a crowded field, meaning that he, they've changed the rules to what's called winner take all. So as long as President Trump is winning a plurality of the vote, in many states, he will get 100% of the delegates. And the punchline kind of for all of us is that that makes it much easier for him to get the nomination much more quickly. So I would argue that by March 5th, which is Super Tuesday, we'll have had 45% of the delegates at stake being voted on. We likely will have a very good idea of who's going to be the nominee or whether it's going to be more of a competitive two-person race, as you said. So we know there's four people on the stage later. Is there a date on the calendar where that four needs to become one? 
to change the outcome of this? Well, I think there are a lot of folks on both the Republican side and then also some on the Democratic side. As you've seen, there's some now Democratic donors who are, uh, you know, uh, donating to, to Nikki Haley. Uh, sort of interesting, uh, un unprecedented in many ways, who are trying to argue for a Chris Christie to say drop out of the race before before Iowa. You know, John, I think what we've seen though before is that again, so much can change. That much of this is unprecedented, um, particularly given what we might be facing, which is uh, you know, two, you know, two incumbent presidents effectively running against each other. So I, you know, I don't think there's a, a drop dead date, but I, I do think that it needs to become a two-person race sort of by South Carolina. That's February 24th. So I think the bottom line for kind of the markets and for investors is that the next 75 days really matters. We will have a very good idea by sort of South Carolina, by Super Tuesday, which is March 5th, whether this is going to be President, President Trump, Biden, or whether it's going to be more of a two-person race between Nikki Haley and, and, and Trump. In those 75 days, we're going to be dealing with a couple of deadlines for funding the government. Mm. Before I let you go, we keep talking about where is the leverage. <laughs> the leverage is in the U.S. government, and they mm. need to figure something out in order to keep operating. How are you advising people in the market to understand what's happening, what the likelihood of a shutdown is, what that means in terms of the growing risk, frankly, that it's been attributed to in markets? Yeah, so I mean, I think there are two things. One is that this is not the debt ceiling, right? The debt ceiling was existential for, for the markets. That has been fortunately addressed until you know January or February of 2025. This is really the most foundational function of Congress is just to keep the lights on. Um, they, they keep kicking the can down the road, Lisa. Does it really matter if they shut down the government? Probably not if it's not for a sustained period of time, but if it does go on for weeks, then we don't get some of the economic data, then it could actually start hurting the economy. But I think this is just sort of noise. But I think the punchline here from a fiscal perspective is this effectively funds the government at the same levels as last year. Um, and what we're not, we're not gonna see any more fiscal stimulus. And I think the threshold for any sort of stimulus even if we do go into recession, I know your previous guest was pretty sanguine about the economy. I think we maybe we as as bond investors are a little less so. Um, but the, the threshold for any sort of fiscal stimulus is going to be very high. So we think the government probably will be funded probably at the last moment. But again, from a market's perspective, we're not sure. We're sort of, there's more noise than, than really anything. It's always the way, isn't it? Equities, hopes and dreams, bonds, <laughs> fears and nightmares. Yeah. Do you know who what I relate to? Uh, yeah, obviously. <laughs> obviously. Well, yeah. Libby, thank you. Thank it's you good so to see much, you. Great to catch nice up. Libby Cantrell there at PIMCO. I'm pleased to say that joining us now is Elliot Ackerman, the U.S. Marine Corps veteran and former White House fellow. Elliot, wonderful to hear from you, sir. Always appreciate your perspective and your deep experience. Let's start with that experience. Can you describe for our audience the type of urban combat taking place right now? You know, the urban combat that we're seeing in Gaza, um, you know, it's something that happens really at uh, very close quarters, uh, you know, street by street, house by house, uh, room to room. As I think I've said on this show, you being in an urban fight is like uh, it's like being in a knife fight in a phone booth. So uh, it also takes away the, the advantage that high tech militaries have. Um, and I think we're seeing that play out. And it's also oftentimes it's very, very messy. And uh, one of the greatest casualties in an urban fight is the city that the fight is taking place. And I think we're seeing that today as, uh, you know, vast parts of Gaza are, are, are being turned to rubble. And the civilians who live there, Elliot. So let's discuss that. Given the type of combat that we're seeing at the moment, how on earth do you prevent the tragic loss of civilian life we've seen? 
you know, it's extremely difficult, and that factors into the into the calculus um, on on both sides. Um, fundamental to you know Hamas's attack on October seventh was they knew that they were going to force the Israelis' hands to fight them inside Gaza, which would lead to civilian casualties, which would lead to much more uh, attention being placed on the Palestinian cause in the world, and also uh, a significant international outcry to end the fighting. And so, you know, I think the one thing that we can see when we're looking at what is going on. Uh, in Gaza is that at least thus far, uh, it would seem that it has proceeded exactly according to Hamas's plan. Given that, Elliot, how much longer do you think that Israel has from a political uh, perception standpoint, as well as just their own aims, before they're going to stop? You know, the the aims of the Israeli government, uh, as they've articulated, is the you know complete annihilation of Hamas. I think one of the things that's difficult is it's an extremely high bar to completely destroy a terrorist organization as opposed to uh, degrade its capabilities or make it so it's no longer a threat. Um, so if that is their, their stated objective, uh, I think they're in some ways probably setting themselves up for failure because it's difficult to see how they're going to completely destroy every single member of Hamas from the face of the earth, particularly as many of them are not in Gaza. You know, and the other issue that complicates factors that we can't forget about is there's, you know, a significant number of hostages still inside Gaza. So the Israelis can't finish this operation until those hostages have been freed. So uh, unfortunately, I think this is going to go on quite a bit longer, but every day that it extends, it becomes politically much more costly for the Israelis. Do you agree uh, with Secretary of Defense Delayed Austin when he basically said that the the fear here is that Israel is setting it itself up for a strategic defeat. I think that is certainly I, I don't know that they are going to end up in a strategic defeat. But I think if the Israelis lose sight of the fact that war is always fought on two planes, both the, the tactical, the operational, what's happening on the ground, you know, how much of Gaza is being taken or retaken, um, but also the political, uh, how those actions are perceived. And so, you know, history is littered with cases of nations and armies that won the battle but lost the war. And I think the Israelis need to be very mindful that they don't place themselves in that situation. And we've been through a period of really intense diplomacy. We've seen that over the last two months. How elevated still do you think the odds are they brought a conflict in the region? I think they've I think they've certainly lessened, but I think we absolutely want to uh, keep our eye on uh, on any actions that seem as though they could spread the conflict. Um, you know, as you know, the United States has a you know a very significant military presence there. We've surged naval assets into the Mediterranean Sea, all signaling very strongly uh, to the Iranians uh, not to spread this conflict or engage in those actions. But we've also seen simultaneously that the Iranians have been attacking U.S. forces abroad. That there have been many instances of provocation, and not only our leaders, but also our, our troops on the ground have to be very, very mindful um, that their actions uh, could have strategic consequences. So uh, I don't think it, it does not seem as though the conflict is going to spread, um, but it's still on a hair trigger. This is a conversation about a direct conflict. I just wonder from your perspective and your opinion, Elliot, whether you think we're already in a proxy war with Iran. Um, I think we certainly are, but we've been in a proxy war with Iran for, for decades now, uh, and uh, it has just waxed and waned. I mean, I mean, I'm a veteran of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and uh, both those conflicts, uh, we were fighting a proxy war with Iran, and in both those conflicts, you know, as an American service member, I was, you know, having to dodge IEDs built by Iran and having to deal with uh 
Quds Force paramilitaries who are operating who are Iranian in those theaters. So we've been fighting that war for a long, long time, but it's very important that, uh, as you noted, it, it, you know, it doesn't escalate into an all-out conflagration across the Middle East, particularly as we have another war going on in Ukraine. So these are, you know, these are dangerous times we're living in. I'm glad you brought that up. As a former American service member, as someone who's actually served and seen the threat, what is your sense of this increasing isolationism or the increasing fight over funding for uh, some of these conflicts? Do you think that it's a valid one, or do you think that that's really a retracement from the role that you served for? I think that um, there should always be robust debate in this country uh, about issues of war and peace, and I think that is very, very healthy. However, I also think that you know those debates should uh, occur in a functional as opposed to a dysfunctional way. They should occur in a way that has very clear-eyed uh, or takes a very clear-eyed view of the world beyond our shores and isn't naive uh, of the, the place of America in the world. So, um, you know, I, I don't think it's inappropriate for members of Congress to be debating how long and how much the United States is going to spend on these wars. Um, but I also think if there's some type of idea that the U.S. can just retreat within its borders uh, and that's going to be in the best interest of this country, I mean, we, you know, we've seen, that, uh, we've seen that play out before and it doesn't play out to the best interest of the United States. You're implying, Elliot, that the debate right now is not healthy. What would a healthy debate look like and why is what we're seeing right now not healthy? I think there's a degree of brinksmanship that's going on. Um, and I think that uh, brinksmanship of, you know, tying aid packages together, um, the you know, much of the dysfunction that we've seen in, 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 in Congress where uh, we no longer, where Congress no longer exists, or the culture, and I'm old enough to remember this culture, in which uh, most people operated under uh, a mode of that, you know, America's differences ended at our shores, and we pro- when we projected ourselves abroad, we projected ourselves as a unified country. I mean, now we know that our allies, you know, have different, you know, they prefer a Republican or a Democratic administration and have policies that they set for both. So I think just the, the overall fractiousness in our country um, is uh, hurting the efficacy of our foreign policy. Um, so that's what I mean. Elliot, thank you, sir, for your clarity. Elliot Ackerman there on the latest on the situation in the Middle East and with Ukraine and Russia as well. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
so pleased to say joining me right now is David Rubenstein. I want to pick up on that point that Bill was saying, which is his activism is now not in a corporate boardroom, but on college campuses. And we heard this yesterday from Mark Rowan of Apollo. How much are you hearing that increasingly from some of your peers? Well, there's no doubt that uh, Bill Ackman doesn't need to be an activist in investing anymore because, as he said in the interview, he wasn't that well known when he was an activist and therefore he had to get attention and doing activist kind of things got people's attention. Now he's pretty well known, so he can avoid that part of the, his investing process. In terms of uh, uh, college and Harvard, he has been very active at, uh, at, with his letter uh, to um, Claudine Gay and, and Mark Rowan has been very active at Penn as well. And a number of other business people have been active. There's no doubt that there's a lot of concern in the business, but other communities about uh, what's going on at college campuses. And as we all know, uh, it's not a pleasant situation to be Jewish student in some campuses these days or to be um, a Muslim student in some, camp some campuses has been a problem as well. So I don't think there's a perfect answer. We're not going to solve it overnight. Uh, it's going to take some time for all these colleges to kind of figure out what the right balance is. Do you get a sense that there is something specific that people are asking for that goes beyond a statement on anti-Semitism or Islamophobia and goes more to the nature of conversation at certain universities? Well, at certain universities, um, I would say on the left, far left or far right, there's not a lot of uh, room for people who disagree. Um, some campuses are far left, some are maybe more conservative, and people who disagree with the conventional or the majority view don't get the kind of uh, support that they might want to uh, receive from the college presidents or universities in some cases. Um, Harvard is seen by people in Congress who said yesterday in the, in the hearing that it's seen as far left. Um, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I was on the board of Harvard for many years, and I think Harvard tries to do the best it can, but it's a very large campus, very diverse. Uh, the president of the university has done a good, as good a job as she can in a very short period of time dealing with these issues, but nobody is going to be able to solve this problem overnight. You're also on the University of Chicago board, and full disclosure, I attended there, so if I'm biased, I just want to uh, be completely transparent. There is this question about whether it's appropriate for a university to take a stand at all on any social issue or just to let the individual professors and students have their own voices rather than have some sort of collective voice that you have to stay within. Do you think that that is the way to go? Well, it's the same issue CEOs face. Should corporations be taking positions on these kind of issues? Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Universities are places where young people are generally uh, allowed to grow and experience what life is going to be about when they leave campuses, and they tend to be uh, sometimes more shrill in certain things they might be when they become an adult. I think at the University of Chicago, we've had a long-standing 100-year policy of basically letting people say what they want, as provided that they don't do anything that harms anybody else or, via, or, or incites violence. But there's been a lot of free speech at the University of Chicago, and I think that's a great tradition there. Do you think that going forward there's going to be any change in response to some of the pressure? Um, given the pressure that we have seen now, I suspect something will happen, but I don't know that Congress will do anything. I think the university boards are probably going to be more sensitive to these issues. There is going to be more security for certain students there, for sure, but I think there'll be more of a mood, move towards a University of Chicago approach where more people are allowed to say what they think without feeling that if they say something that's unpopular, they'll be criticized or harmed physically. Just uh, besides this particular issue with Bill Ackman, he's also been vocal about investing in treasuries, just to shift a little bit to the investment okay. side. And I am curious, if you're starting to hear this more, that certain hedge funds that maybe are struggling to get an edge in public markets are just making bold trades on the path of interest rates. How much, how much are you hearing that? 
Well, Bill Ackman said in the interview was that he generally doesn't make big macro bets. That's not what he generally does. He generally makes bets on companies. But um, in a couple of times in, in his history, he has made a macro bets, and some have worked out extremely well. Um, and he's made one not too long ago where he made a couple billion dollar, I mean, I guess it was a $2 billion profit on a relatively modest investment in a relatively short period of time. That's hard to do. This time he's made a bet, in effect, that the Treasury rate will go down, or the interest rate will go down. The Fed will lower interest rates sooner than the conventional wisdom thinks. And I assume he's structured it so that if they do, he'll make a fair amount of money. And I'm assuming that right now he's pretty happy with what he's seeing because the market's coming along uh, to his view. The conventional wisdom today is that the, the, the Fed is likely to cut interest rates sooner than maybe people thought a, a month ago. Um, right now, I think the Fed doesn't want to get into the election season. So if they're going to cut rates, they're probably not going to do it too close to the presidential election. So they probably would have to do it sooner. Meanwhile, just want to bring this to you. Uh, just breaking, Citigroup is reporting some figures and what they expect, and they say that fourth quarter trading revenue is expected to drop 15 to 20 percent compared to the third quarter. And you can see, uh, as the CFO does talk, uh, you can see shares falling. This really does speak to this sense that there isn't going to be the same kind of opportunity to make profits for some of these firms as there has been earlier in this year, that basically this is what they're going to pitch when the, when the CEOs go down to Washington, right. D.C. and start saying, you know, maybe we earned record profits, but we're going to lose it to people like you, uh, David Rubenstein, at private credit and private equity. What do you make of some of these arguments? Uh, I'm not worrying too much about the large banks. They can take care of themselves. I'm sure they'll do well when interest rates go up or down. There's no doubt when interest rates go up, they tend to make more money historically. If interest rates go down, they're very smart. They'll find other ways to make money. Uh, private equity firms and private credit firms have done quite well, generally, over the last 10, 20 years or so. And we have a lot of very smart people. We'll try to figure out how to navigate whatever interest rate environment we have. David Rubenstein, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for being on. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, and this is Bloomberg. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world.